This is, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the incredibly niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast where we watch old games and break them down in a last gasp attempt to remember, to memorialize, to honor our beloved Vancouver Grizzlies who were torn from the tender care of our loving arms by the evil Michael Heisley. I'm Jeremy Allingham. I'm with the man, the myth, the legend, Justin McElroy. How are you doing, Justin? I'm doing good, Jeremy. I am feeling better than the Vancouver Grizzlies in 1995 and 1990, pretty much any season of the Vancouver Grizzlies. Uh, and uh, I'm excited as we continue to go through this first season when hope was still alive, but there were many, many losses to go. Yeah, I want, I want to point out, um, I don't know if I've shown you yet, but I'm wearing this existential dread. It's a ripoff of the Grizzlies logo. I don't know how they get away with that uh, trademark wise, but I don't think the designer actually understood the meta level <laughs> of what it means to use this logo and say existential dread because <laughs> it's it just, it suits Vancouver Grizzlies fans so well that I don't think the, the designer who I think is from Toronto even gets it. So I think it's the totality of the Grizzlies experience of hoping with just a tiny little bit of your brain that something is going to get better, but knowing that it never actually will. But the episode we have today is a big one in Vancouver Grizzlies history, and it's because the greatest player, arguably, of all yes. time, came to town for the very first time. The day was November 30th, 1995. The Vancouver Grizzlies were 2-12, and 12, and they were up against the one, the only, the 1995-1996 Chicago Bulls. We're talking about Jordan's comeback season where the Bulls had the most wins of any championship team ever. This was the Death Star coming to town, and it could not have been a bigger deal for Vancouver sports fans. The Bulls have been big news here in Vancouver all week. Autograph seekers wherever they've gone. They're, the Bulls are a great lobby team. They get a lot of attendance in the lobbies of these hotels they stay at. No kidding, and I mean, this is, in context, yes, they've lost 12 in a row at this point on their way to losing 19 in a row. So they've lost some of the mojo, but really it's only the fifth home game in Vancouver and by far the biggest ticket that's come to town since the season's begun. They've had the T-Wolves, the Clippers, the Mavericks, which all those teams in the mid nineties were pretty trash. Um, the LA Lakers, which was, it was the year that Magic Johnson came back after the HIV time off, but um, you know, they had Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones, like some solid players that you'd want to see, but absolutely nothing compared to, as you said, the arguable GOAT, Scottie Pippen, the world-famous Chicago Bulls. And the Bulls are 11-2 and two at this point. They're not exactly blowing teams out. They're still kind of getting their feet under them. Just for context, the three previous games were a three-point win over Portland, a five-point loss to uh, Gary Payton and the Seattle Supersonics, and a five-point win over Utah. So they're, you know, they're they're battling out wins here. They are not, they are just beginning this insane 31 and one stretch that really bolts them immediately into okay, this 
Jordan comeback is real. This isn't like last year where he looked lame losing against the Magic. The Grizzlies, meanwhile, I think the fans are still in the high of those first two wins in their first two games. But you can tell clearly this is an expansion team. They're figuring stuff out. I don't think anyone thought in Vancouver that the Grizzlies were going to win this game. Before we get to the game, let's talk about the aesthetics. We did this with the jerseys for the Grizzlies in the first game. Bulls had a little wrinkle here that became fairly common for them during this second dynasty. Yeah, so... I kind of rolled my eyes when I first saw it because I was really excited to check out the, the Bulls kits because they're always so crisp and so beautiful. But they actually were rolling out the black road jerseys, which immediately my mind goes to every team in every sport has an alternate black. It's super overplayed. I'm super tired of it. And it's just become the go-to when they're kind of out of ideas as far as jersey design. But when you think back to that era, you know, this this was actually kind of badass, right? Like it was like, yes, we have the white. Yes, we have the red. But check out this black and we're going to come to town and thump you wearing these blacks. So, you know, as much as my current self wasn't loving the black so much, when you take a look, you know, it is a crisp look. And I think if I put myself in the 90s, you know, I'd have given my left arm for one of those jerseys. It was the All Blacks, it was the New York Yankees, even the Denver Broncos when they were winning their back-to-back Super Bowls had like a very dark blue, uh, so certainly wasn't played out at the time. So the Bulls come in menacing, but it is clear, even from the opening tip-off, that the intensity is not necessarily there for Chicago on this night. Yeah, so let's let's start with Michael Jordan, and, and we'll stick on the aesthetics just for one second, because, I mean, Jordan's the look, he's the guy, he's the jump man. Um, and I really wanted to see exactly kind of what era, what progression of look Jordan was in. He's wearing a red sweatband on his left forearm, just below the elbow, sporting that uh, barely noticeable tash that you kind of have to lean in to, to check out. Uh, and for sneakerheads out there, he's wearing white Jordan 11s. I'm not a sneakerhead, but I do respect the sneakerhead game. Um, so the Jordan 11s, those are definitely, so those are the ones with the shiny vinyl strip along the bottom. And to my taste, they are my favorite Jordans of all time. And, you know, as you said, the Grizzlies are in their home whites, which are also beautiful. So a really good look. But as you said, we're, we're getting at there, Jordan is feeling, you know, he's exasperated in his boredom and ennui with having to face this ragtag bunch that we know is the Vancouver Grizzlies. This is just another game. And it must be the thing, when you're... They're not the defending champions in 1995, but they sort of are in the sense that every team is amped to play them. Right. And already this Bulls team is at another level, and they just got to get through this. And in the first quarter, it is not really there. No, and I mean, like, yeah, you're right in that they're they're not the defending champions of the NBA, but they are the reigning world champions. Like, there's no question. I mean, everyone knows that when... Michael came back that it was like, wow, the championship goes to Chicago again. And I mean, imagine knowing the level that you can reach when you're that kind of all-time kind of player and looking across the court at the starting lineup of the Vancouver Grizzlies, which was big country, our beloved big country, Chris King, Antonio Harvey, Greg Anthony, and Blue Edwards. I mean, that's, I could see how that's tough to get up for. That is not exactly a murderer's row. For the Bulls starting this game, uh, it was Jordan, Pippen, Longley, 
Harper. I don't need to say the first name for any of those. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that. But Rodman was out this game. And it's funny, the announcers talk about his hair in the first quarter, but he's out, which means the fifth spot goes to the one, the only Dickie Simpkins. And if you don't remember Dickie Simpkins being part of the Bulls dynasty, that's because he really wasn't but in the first quarter he's sort of a linchpin for the bulls which is not necessarily a good sign if you're chicago and you know jordan comes out and he he hits a couple long jumpers michael at the arc for two long news he's moving at half speed to the point where i'm kind of going like is he ever gonna run fast is he going to try he kind of fades into the background a bit as much as you know michael jordan can but as you pointed out i mean the Grizzlies oddly have some swagger in this first quarter and do not look at all like a team on a 12-game losing streak. And it kind of makes you understand what it's like to be the Chicago Bulls on that pedestal with the target on your back and front where it's like, no matter what town we go to, the fans are up for it. The players on the other team are up for it. They want a piece of us. This is the biggest game of some of these guys' careers. And for Michael Jordan, he'd rather just kind of like put up 25 shots, you know, score 30 points and hopefully go home with a 20-point win. But you quickly realize that maybe that's not going to happen tonight. The Grizzlies are pushing the tempo. They're making a game of it from the get-go. And the biggest reason for this is Greg Anthony. King right back to Anthony. Wants a screen from Reeves and gets it. Nicely done on the reverse. Chance of free wheel a little bit. He was under a structure in New York, and you didn't see him get to use that talent. He's got we, we've talked about a little in the first uh, game. He is clearly a player with pace. He can shoot. He can distribute. He could play for any team in the NBA, bar none. And in this first quarter, he gets a nice reverse at one point. He gets a steal. He makes something out of nothing a bunch of times. Ends the game with 27 points. The first quarter is ultimately the highlight, but you can see clearly why he was the best player for the Grizzlies that first season. He looks unreal. And I, I mean, I take back everything bad I ever said about Greg Anthony. I mean, the guy was unbelievable out there, scoring from all the way behind the arc to the rim and just was an abs- was a pinball. He was bouncing off dudes' chests, finishing, and he just was an absolute spark plug and the reason that the, the Grizzlies were in this game early. I like how absolutely unbelievable for the Grizzlies is a low bar. But it's true in that first quarter, he was uh, actually inspiring to watch. First quarter comes and goes. Vancouver Grizzlies are down 25 to 23 to the Chicago Bulls. Now brings us to a first of what's going to be a recurring segment in this podcast that we like to call Watching Big Country. And Big Country as we all know, is the one, the only, Bryant Reeves, the only player who played every single season for the Vancouver Grizzlies. He only played for the Vancouver Grizzlies. Ultimately, the symbolic beginning and end, linchpin, everything good and bad about this team. And today, against the Bulls, he actually steps up a little bit. A bit of good, yeah. I mean, like, uh, the coming from his first home game to this one, it was a bit of a shock to me when he came in the game and looked like an NBA player. Uh, he had energy. He was putting together some decent post moves. Reeves on the block against Longland. Big country with the first two points of the And frankly, like, 
there was a point where I said to myself, he's absolutely schooling Luke Longley, who's, you know, not an all-star or anything, but a veteran who's won championships. He took it to him. He ended up with 11 points, seven rebounds, two steals, an assist, a block, three for seven from the field, five for six from the line. Most importantly, I think, or most noticeably to me, is he played 37 minutes, including almost the whole first quarter. And so clearly he's getting in better shape. Like there's no two ways about it because the last time we've seen him, he's hunched over after two minutes. Yeah, he is showing very early on that he can be a full-time starter in the NBA, not embarrassed to. Ultimately, you would have liked to see him a little bit more active. He started off strong in the first quarter, sort of receded as the game went on, but really an encouraging showing. There was one funny time when the announcers pointed out just how blockable and low to the ground <laughs> his turn away, turnaround was, but these are encouraging signs for big country. Yeah, and I should point out, too, the Vancouver fans are Vancouver fans. And if you've ever been to a Canucks game, which many of us have, chant, shoot. And they've transferred that skill here to big country with the ball outside the three-point line. And I'm going like, no, no, let's, let's not do that. Though he ends up taking one in the third quarter, so they got in his head a little bit. Big, big country. country. Oh, that would have brought the house down. I think Vancouver basketball fans still sorting their stuff out there as well. Second quarter begins, and it is much like the first. The Bulls are still not really in it. Grizzlies slow down a little bit as well. The game is such that in our notes, one of the highlights is how the announcers talk about how the Derek Coleman-Sean Bradley trade has just come in over the wires and could shake up the league in terms of 1990 mediocrities that never did anything after 1995. Uh, and Jordan, for the most part, still, he's in the game, and he's active on defense, but in terms of offense, he is not bringing anything at this point. Yeah, I remember there was one moment in the second quarter where I'm just, you know, you're, you're re-watching this game, and you're kind of begging for Jordan to do something, right? Like, to, to, to bring some excitement. And he gets the ball outside the arc, and he's got a defender on him, and you kind of see him sizing the defender up. He does a little jab step and I'm like, okay, let's, let's see something here. Let's see a little, a little move to the hoop or like, you know, a, a go and stop a, a little pull up J or something like that. And you could see his, his brain kind of go like, eh, I don't think I feel like it. And just, he passes the ball to the post, but you know, like it's not just MJ who's bored here. Like almost everyone on the team is just bored out of their mind. Steve, I mean, and really not playing well too. Like Steve Kerr comes in the game, air balls a three. Tony Kukoc comes in the game. He's pretty brutal. He shoots 30% for the game. And, you know, in the first quarter, just going back quickly, Scottie Pippen gets the ball in the post two or three times and scores with absolute ease. And you think, hey, maybe you're Scottie Pippen. You want to drop 35 tonight. Not really. No, they don't go back to him again. So it's just more of the same. The Bulls just not having that desire at all. Yeah, somehow the Scotty Pippen-Chris King matchup, not a big win for the Grizzlies. Uh, there's one point, it's funny when we watch these games, the announcers always talk about Byron Scott because they know who Byron Scott is. Yeah. Uh, he comes into the game off the bank, she's feeling it, makes a shot, the announcers, uh, you know, boldly opine. Well, the note on Byron Scott is that in his 12 years in the NBA, the team he's played on has made the playoffs every year. I think that might be broken if he spends the year here in Vancouver. Uh, we get near the end of the second uh, quarter. The Bulls are at the free throw line. And then we see, for the first real time in the game, Jordan try and come to life. 
Michael's on the runway. He only missed his ball. He had a shot at it. Yeah, a little spark from from MJ here. And he basically, he does the thing where he um, crowds up to the three-point line during a free-throw attempt and goes in for the massive putback. And it's almost funny because the, the announcers who were um, Wayne Larave and Johnny Red Kerr, he was the analyst, and I think he used to play for the Bulls in the 60s. Um, they kind of said, oh, Jordan fails to fails to produce or fails to finish. And I'm like, okay, first of all, that's a top 1% of historical NBA players play to be able to time that jump high enough, quick enough, have the dexterity to grab it with one or two hands and put it back. Like, I mean, very few people in the league, even now, you don't even see people try it. Right. It's so no. tough. It's so low. It's so high risk, right? I risk injury wise for sure. But also, yeah, you make a good point. Your man is now on the fast break and you're going to give up numbers coming back the other way. And we know that modern, defenses like to get back in the in the key and defend the hoop but i have a little rant on this so so bear with me here why did people not box michael jordan out like this is not 1986 <laughs> this is not his second third year in the league and it's like who's this young kid from north carolina who's doing this crazy stuff during free throws like the guy is literally the most famous athlete on the planet at this point and one of the reasons he's famous is for flying in during free throw attempts and thunder dunking on you know the putback alley oop. So at what point are you going? I'm not going to let that happen and just putting your ass into him and stopping him, stopping it from happening. Like I just, it's one of those things where it's almost like the legend, you know, becomes too strong to stop. Like it's just like, well, this is going to happen, so I'm just going to let it happen. I don't know. I don't get it. I mean, maybe you don't want Jordan to take it personally. Uh, we'll get to that later in the yes. game. But no, it's funny to see Vancouver just gossmacked here as Jordan tries this for what has to be the 124th time. Does not work, however. Halftime comes. Chicago still up 44-42. Both teams just 19 points in that second quarter. Oof, it's yeah. mid-90s it's, it's mid basketball uh, still, and if no one's playing well, then it's going to be grimy like that. Halftime, we have another new segment called What Did Stu Do Now? <laughs> Stu being Stu Jackson. <laughs> Stu Jackson being uh, the general manager and president of the Vancouver Grizzlies for the first five years of their existence. And Jeremy, it would be hard to find one person in Vancouver who is a fan of this team that has truly 100% nice things to say about Stu. And I'm sure he's a fantastic human being, but his decisions, his decisions time and time again. And so here's where we're going to go in each game, something that reminds us of how annoyed we were of Stu's moves. Yeah, I mean, thanks so much for that reminder of who Stu Jackson was and what he did, well, to us. I was gonna say for us, but what he did to us. <laughs> it was to us. Um, yeah, I mean, the guy, he was, I mean, yeah, sure. I'm sure he's a, a totally solid dude, but just a disaster of a basketball executive. Like, I mean, I honestly, even though Michael Heisley moved the team, like I still, I blame Stu Jackson because like, I feel like there were so many moments in time for this franchise where if one awesome decision, one great draft pick, one great trade, or just something could have happened not even a great trade or decision Holy just yeah. average ones if he just made average ones Holy we God. are an entirely different place and maybe you know and, and i tell myself 
that we maybe we still have a team and like who knows that's probably not true but i kind of grip to that thought in my head and you know the the one that jumped out at me in this game was you know we get a front and center example of a massive whiff in the expansion draft so ron harper the starting combo guard for the chicago bulls was left unprotected in the expansion draft before the grizzlies came in and as far as we know the grizzlies could have had him he's 31 years old and though his stats aren't great on this bulls team um, he's seven points, three rebounds, three assists, and a steal on 52% shooting. You know, he doesn't get the looks. He doesn't get the touches. He's a glue he's guy. He's the fourth or fifth option every time he's on the court. And as I was thinking to myself, you got to expect those numbers would be way better on a team without Pippen, MJ, Tony Kukoc. And, you know, you look at his stats two years before, just two years playing for the LA Clippers, he averaged 20 points a game, an excellent defender, a winner. You can tell that, like, this guy can get to the hole. He's not afraid to take the three. He's a leader. And, I mean, like, at the very least, rock bottom, he's a rich man's Blue Edwards. So you see, like, Ron Harper could have, just like players like this, could have changed the trajectory of this franchise to winning basketball games. But we just, we couldn't get him for whatever reason. Stu couldn't get him. Well, anytime you can play 30 minutes of Blue Edwards a game, you have to take it. My what did Stu do now airing of grievance for this game is uh big king shreves is playing because uh benoit benjamin is uh, traded uh, away i don't know why they picked him if they were going to immediately trade him but uh Stu actually got half decent value in a sense of uh he got eric murdoch from and eric murdoch played at a good clip for the grizzlies the rest of the year you look at the advanced stats he was second in terms of win shares and value for replacement player to greg anthony did a fully serviceable job and then they released him in the off season for nothing <laughs> the other person that they got in there was eric mobley who was a third string center for two seasons there just another example of the Grizzlies having an asset and having an opportunity and Stu just shrinking the value of that with move after move after move. Dollars into quarters, quarters into pennies, pennies into nothing. Like, literally, like, yeah, let them go. Eric Murdoch, gone, out the door. Okay, okay, man. Pennies into nothing, the Stu Jackson story. It's time for the third quarter. The Bulls are still, we keep waiting for the Chicago Bulls <laughs> to be the Chicago Bulls, and they are not, and we can start seeing on the sidelines a little bit, Phil Jackson looking a wee bit unhappy at this point. Yeah, and I mean, like, this is, because, like, I actually think Phil Jackson didn't care for the first half either. <laughs> like, like I think he's even just like, can I, like, go have a drink and, like, just go to bed or what? But you finally see him. Actually, there was one point in the first half he was even bantering with some, some fans. They're all having a discussion, I think, with the fans behind the Bulls bench. I think these people are very distracted by the whole Vancouver Grizzlies thing. But anyway, he starts getting <laughs> pissed off. In my head, I was kind of like, good. Like, somehow they have to start caring. And hopefully, Bill Jackson swearing at them a bit in the next time out will get them starting to care about this game. And, you know, it's funny. In this third quarter, what we get is what seems to be the signature Antonio Harvey energy burst. Antonio! two baskets that he's made taking giant steps to the hoop big time baskets michael running circles around edwards denied by harvey reeves to anthony defense dunk defense gets pumped you know the crowd cheers and you're like like is third quarter like antonio harvey time or something 
I love it. It's just he looks like a superhero for 45 seconds of every game and then goes to being completely invisible the rest of the time. But he gets this dunk. Chris King gets another high-energy dunk later on in the quarter. Everyone is contributing, which leads us to our next segment. Better Noah Grizzly. And today's Better Noah Grizzly is Anthony Avent. Anthony Avent. So... At this point, 26 years old, third year in the league, had been acquired earlier that month for Kevin Pritchard and Larry Stewart. Now, at first, when I read those names, I'm thinking to myself, who in the Lord's name are these two absolute nobodies in the history of the league? Larry Stewart remains there for me. Um, a quick basketball reference <laughs> doesn't show much on the, the career of Larry Stewart, but you pointed out and i quickly realized yes mcelroy right as always kevin pritchard the gm of the indiana pacers vancouver grizzlies minutia to the max kevin pritchard traded away for anthony avent anthony avent leaves a lot to be desired statistically yeah you don't want to say someone's a plug when they are much taller and much more talented than you will <laughs> ever be but anthony avent was a plug. In the NBA in 1995-1996, there was nobody who played at least 1,000 minutes in the league with a worse advanced stats than Anthony Avent. He had negative 1.2 win shares. He shot 38% from the field, despite virtually all of his shots being within three or four feet of the basket. He was a big man who at the end of the day got very few blocks, and yet he got all these minutes. And again, the Grizzlies played him 20, 25 minutes a game, despite the fact that he contributed less on the court than virtually anyone in the NBA that season. And whether that's a Stu Jackson move or a Brian Winters move, we don't know. A testament to how the Grizzlies gave so many minutes in this first season particularly to players who, Avent was 26. He had already played three, two or three seasons with the Orlando Magic. His ability to advance from this point was not exactly there. And yet all this time went to a player who sucked away offense and possible wins when he was on the court. Oh, man, that was very harsh. I was just going to say, like, I, I'm glad you brought it up. Like, my policy generally when talking about professional athletes is, like, if you played a game in the NBA, you're my goddamn hero because, like, so few people get to accomplish that and to have any kind of career in pro sports, let alone the National Basketball Association, which I, you know, pray at the altar of, you're amazing. And, and that's incredible. But in the context of the league, man, at the events, numbers are tough to look at. And you, you outlined them nicely. I will give him a little up here, a little boost. He actually blocks Michael Jordan in the second quarter. And guess what? If he retires there, and gets to tell that to everyone he meets for the rest of his life, that's pretty damn sweet. So good on you, Anthony Avent, but wow, those are stinking, stinking bad numbers. That is infinitely more impressive than anything you or I will ever do. And the fact that I rebut it all that by bringing up advanced stats like negative warp and win shares is something where essentially we are dunking on ourselves there. <laughs> that's Anthony Avent, it's and fine. that's better. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's better know a grizzly. We are getting to the end of the third quarter at this point, but then Derek Martin comes in, and Derek Martin gets an and one. Nine to go on the shot clock. Derek Martin again on the drive. Yes and a foul. Yes and a count. 
And then something happens that sort of turns the entire narrative of this game around from one that we remember as Michael Jordan comes to town to Michael Jordan has one of his signature moments that is still remembered by certain people around the league to this game. And that is because of Derek Martin. Because of all because of Derek Martin, who makes an incredible circus and one. And I watch it and I go, oh, nice. Like that was one of the, you know, one of the four or five best plays of the game to that point. But then quickly my attention turns from the great play on the court to the, oh no, like, oh my God, what are you doing, man? As he, with a super kind of like nasty attitude, stomps towards the Bulls bench and, oh no, again, straight at Michael Jordan. And from behind, his head is nodding like he's saying some harsh words. And I'm just like, I, I knew there was a Derek Martin moment in this game. You had alluded to it, and I had I had internalized it through some different tweets over the years, but I had forgotten specifically what it was. But this is the moment I'm going like, dude, I get that you're pumped. I get this is a big moment. And who wouldn't be excited to do that? But you look at Michael Jordan, and you walk the other way, man. You just walk the other way. <laughs> According to David Halberstram, who was writing a book on the Bulls that season, Derek Martin, a backup guard for an expansion team, went up to Michael Jordan right there. And you don't see what he says on the screen, but he says, you ain't so hot. I can stop you anytime I want. To Michael <laughs> Jordan. Oh, man. Like, I'm trying to put, like, I... I used to trash talk people who were better than me too when I played like high school and a little bit of college and stuff. But like, I don't know. This just, it's beyond the pale to the point of just like, like I, I get, let's have some banter. Let's go at the guy. Like, don't let him beat you. Don't allow him to just win by the virtue of being Michael Jordan. But like, I can stop you whenever I want. No, no, you can't. That's not true, Derek Martin. <laughs> you know, we're doing this a couple months after the ESPN documentary on the Bulls' final season, in which I took it personally, became a meme, and everyone became aware of Jordan's insane hyper-competitiveness and how he just needed the slightest slight in order to turn it on. And that wasn't a slight slight. That was from a scrub about as big of a slight as you would need, particularly if you are down two points to an expansion team with one quarter to go. And, and just as they cut to commercial heading into the fourth quarter, they zoom in on Jordan sitting on the bench and he is not happy. I will tell you that he, you could tell he's ruminating it. He's playing it over and over in his head. I can stop you anytime I want. And um, he's about to, fix things, let's just say. But before he fixes things, there's actually a little bit of a delay. So he gets in the game with about 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter. Grizzlies up 64-62 after three. The announcers ominously go, Here comes Michael now. He got a, a real long rest. But while he's in the game, Martin makes a three. He gets the fans, he tells them, raise noise. He starts to, to telling them to pump up. Then he gets another two-pointer. Martin is feeling it. He's shadow boxing. The Grizzlies are up 77 to 69. And everyone is thinking, who did not see that Martin Jordan interaction, this could be Vancouver's night. This crowd is smelling something good. In oh, it is. This could be a huge upset. Like Derek Martin at this point is begging to be humiliated by Michael Jordan. Like, 
And again, I get it. I get your pump, and that's amazing. And dropping, dropping dimes and dropping J's on the Chicago Bulls must be better than any drug that exists. Like, I get that. But, like, you're begging to be embarrassed at this point, especially when he starts throwing, like, shadow jabs and hooks and, like, oh, man, he's having a good time. So I won't, you know, I won't say much more, but I'm just going, like, please. It's 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 like the worst scripted cable Tuesday night drama where you're like, oh, I can see where this one's going. <laughs> and as soon as the Grizzlies get up by seven, that's when it turns. Martin makes another wild attempt for a basket. It's a circus shot. He suddenly is, like, he transforms back, you know, the genie puts him back into being Derek Martin instead of a superhero. Jordan immediately gets a dunk. Michael. On the drive with the okay. Tomahawk. That's what they all came to see, didn't they? And maybe that'll ignite him. Michael with only 12 points, his first basket here. Maybe Superman's come out of the uh, phone booth, huh? Yep. Then he gets a step back long two. Then he gets a circus layup. The Bulls steal it. Jordan gets a fadeaway, and suddenly we're tied just like that. It's an absolute whirlwind. It's, you know, the first time he goes to the bucket and he dunks, and it's the classic, it's the jump man pose, arm up, arm back, leg spread, classic tongue out and everything. It's the first time you see his true speed, and that speed is, it seems exponential to that of everyone else on the court. Like, he's a full step ahead and he is just embarrassing Byron Scott. Like, and I'm like, I'm not even making fun of Byron Scott. Like, Byron Scott simply cannot, I was gonna say can't stay in front of him. He can't even really react. Like, it's one of those ones where like the roadrunner goes past Wiley Coyote and like, you know, he like twists his head to see what happened. Like, that's Byron Scott left in the dust as Michael Jordan now goes to all world NBA jam on fire mode. He is showing why he is Michael Jordan. He gets a nasty and one fadeaway on country where he basically just shoves country in the face as he's uh, shooting. Under four minutes to go in the fourth. Jordan on the pull-up. Yes! And a foul! The country couldn't get out of the way. 20 for MJ. He actually misses a shot at uh, one point in this, but then he gets a fadeaway, getting the Bulls up six with two minutes left. He takes Scott apart to get the lead back to six points again. He gets a steal and a dunk with 30 seconds left. Then he gets another steal and another dunk to finish the game off. The steal by Jordan goes in on Anthony. Yes! Bulls salting this one away. He is on such a different plane that there's a reason 25 years later, non-Vancouver fans sometimes bring this game up as a point of his artistry. It's not a top 10 Jordan game or top 20 Jordan game by any means, but it is one of those signature times where he decided to show everyone who he was. Yeah, and I'm kind of, at this as I'm watching it, I'm I'm in awe because it's just wild how easy it looks for him. Um, but I'm also going like, okay, Grizzlies, like you just leave Byron Scott on him. And then at one point they do flip Blue Edwards on him and Blue, like Blue's better. As far as I could tell, I don't know why they put Byron back on him because Blue seemed a bit stronger and a bit quicker and could like, I was going to say contain him, obviously not contain him, but like just stick with him a little bit. And they did double him once in the post because this is how they're, they're getting him looks in the post where everyone clears out to the opposite side, enter it to Jordan and just let him go one-on-one, -on -one, right? And they did double him at one point and he just kicks it back out. They swing around a Kukoc in the corner for a three. And, you know, it's part of this like, dominant 16-2 Bulls run 
I mean, I don't want to give them too, too, too much credit, but you almost felt like they just knew we can do this when we want. We're kind of bored. We're kind of tired from this road trip. Like just leave it to the last six, seven minutes. As long as we're in striking distance, we'll do this and it'll be fine. Jordan, 19 points in the final seven minutes. You do the math on that. If he played at that pace and played just 37, 38 minutes, he gets 100 points. But he was so mediocre in the first three and a half quarters, ended up with sort of a typical Jordan line, 14 for 26 from the field, 29 points, three rebounds, three steals, four assists. Both teams were bad that game, but all it took was Jordan stepping it on for six or seven minutes there at the end. Final score, Chicago 94, Vancouver 88. And I'll like I'll admit something kind of embarrassing to you here. So well, not not the first part. The first part is that I'm a LeBron GOAT guy. I I sincerely believe LeBron James is is the greatest basketball player of all time. And we've come to this point where it's like, well, LeBron has the better career and Jordan's the greatest player, whatever. I think LeBron's the best. However, <laughs> so the, the part that's kind of embarrassing is that during the game, my bias to LeBron started having me go, ah, Michael Jordan doesn't look that great in this game. He's like not even trying. Like, you know, if he was the GOAT, wouldn't he have taken this game over, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of like, it's not the front of my brain, but it's kind of nattering in the back, like the little chatter, like, huh, huh, huh. I'm just trying to, trying to like hammer home what I already believe. And then when this happened, I was like, oh, you're such an idiot. You're such an idiot that you actually fell for it, even knowing what was going to happen in the end. So, you know, that was, that was fun for me to try and like prove to myself that like I was right and then kind of be proven wrong again. Um, and maybe they're, they got to be co-goats, I guess. But uh, you, you, for, you forgot what happens when you watch Jaws. And then at the end seriously. of the game, Jordan goes by the Grizzlies bench as we get a nice little completion of the narrative there between him and Marvin. Well, my goodness. Michael's sitting down there talking to somebody at the end of the... Yeah, he, he walks over and I watched it like four times because it was such a key moment to the story of this game. He walks over and of course, just like perfectly scripted, Derek Martin's sitting on the baseline, like he's not sitting on the bench. He's sitting on the ground, like where the squeegee kids sit and where sometimes like the trainers sit. Maybe he's getting stretched out or whatever. But Jordan comes over and he's standing over him, all six foot six, and he admonishes him like a child. Like he looks down at him, he wags his finger, and I don't know what he said, but basically it was like, don't ever fucking try this shit again. Like that was, it was so clear that he was treating him like a child basically coming over to say this is what you get if you say stupid shit to me uh i did an oral history of the vancouver grizzlies in 2015 and spoke to brian winners i brought up this game because more than perhaps any game in the history of the vancouver grizzlies this is the one people outside of vancouver remember which tells you all you need to know about the vancouver grizzlies and i asked him are the rumors true did martin trash talk did jordan come by and trash back at the end of the game. So Winters said, yeah, it all all happened. He laid it out. And then he said, and at the end of the game, Michael came by our bench and wagged his finger and said to Derek, never fucking talk to me ever that way again. <laughs> it's even more perfect than I imagined. <laughs> and then he said, and then Winter said, he got another win and we got another loss. And that's the story of Michael Jordan. And that's the story of the Vancouver Grizzlies. That 
brings our episode two to an end. This is with the second pick, Steve Francis. I'm Jeremy Allingham for Justin McElroy. Thanks for joining us and uh, watch out for our next episode.